This is Sarah with an exciting announcement. We have just launched the SideWoo Collective, a new inclusive community of artists, metaphysical practitioners, and the Woo Curious. The SideWoo Collective is, for now, an online community focused on art, the metaphysical, and general wellness. Essentially all the things you love about the podcast, but in real life. Our first offering is a three-week online course with classes every Sunday at 6 p.m. between February 12th and the 26th. Classes include sigil making with artist and educator Rachel Dawson, Intuition 101 with tarot reader and Scottish witch Amelia Whitehouse of the Carnelian Keep, and Drawing Your Shadow with Yours Truly. You can go to our new website, thesidewoo.com, to sign up, get on our mailing list, or reach out with any questions. This will be a great way to engage with one another and get a better understanding of who this community is. I'm really excited to share it with you and hope to see you there. Hi, this is Sarah Tebow. And this is Liz Bernstein, and we are the hosts of the Side Woo Podcast. This is a space to investigate what makes a creative life possible, from the mundane to the sublime, the physical to the metaphysical. Welcome to the Side Woo. Hello, and welcome to the 15th episode of the Side Woo. This is co-host Elizabeth Bernstein, and on today's episode, we will talk with artist Rima Golu. Rima lives in Los Angeles, and she graduated from California College of the Arts in 2010. I wanted to start by reading some of Rima's artist statement. My everyday experience of noticing informs my process of making. I respond directly to my external and internal environment, which in most cases is reflective of my studio and its surroundings. The ways in which one sees, absorbs, and recalls an experience is fascinating to me, and I consider how this can be translated and transformed through paintings. I make paintings and painted constructions that inform one another, resulting in the visual language that generates subsequent work. Rima's paintings are emotional powerhouses, and I hope that everybody gets a chance to see them in person. To that end, she has a solo show opening at Contemporary Art Matters called A Closer Look, which opens on Thursday, May 12th and runs through June 30th, 2022, in Columbus, Ohio. On this episode of The Sidewoo, we're going to be talking in depth about family, memory, grief, and loss. And to that end, I wanted to include two trigger warnings about suicide and addiction. But like always, those are only just part of the story, not the whole story in its entirety. I hope you will now join us for episode 15 with Rima Golum. Rima is queen of LA. I am not queen of LA. (laughs) Well, I disagree. I'll just tell a little anecdote about going to an art opening with Rima. You know, LA is a really big city with a really big art scene. And we went to maybe like four or five openings. And every opening, she locked in the room with like arms (laughs) open and just 
admirers flock to her side to just like pay homage to Rima and all the good work that she's done, like teaching, just kind of work in the room, knows like every single person. I don't know. That was my experience. So get ready, everyone. That's funny. You're making me embarrassed. I know. I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> Actually, the thing about LA, I feel like everyone's really easygoing and cool and it's it's pretty easy to meet people. I yeah. mean, maybe not during the pandemic, obviously, but before that, mm. I felt like people were very welcoming, you know, if you mm. just kind of take initiative. And and I don't, I didn't really go to a lot of openings early on. It was more like, you know, after I started curating, I think I met a, a lot of people just doing that yeah. and then working at a gallery and, and teaching. So, but mm-hmm. it ends up being really small. Like the art world is actually really small. Just in general, like case in point, when you go to Miami or something and you see yeah. everyone you know there and you're like, oh, okay, I guess we all just win here now. I remember being at a bar with Kirk, I think it was like 2015 and I was with maybe one other person. We were at one of those like after parties and then I was waiting in line for like 15 minutes to get a drink because it was just so crowded. And then right behind me was Wendy um, White. And I had just been talking about her lecture that she had just done. And I was like fangirled out and I was like, I'll get you a drink. And she was like, really? Because they were $15 each. And I'm like, no, not really. (laughs) But I will cut the line for you because it will take you another 20 minutes. Actually, I hadn't been to Miami since this year. And it felt really celebratory and fun because it was the first time that like, I think lots of people went out. And so it was like fun to be there. I, I oftentimes think openings or a big fair doesn't sound appealing to me just because I get a little bit of social anxiety. <laughs> but it was so fun. I was excited to be there and so stoked to see people. And that was a first for a while. After like day four, I was still like happy to be there and it was fun, you know? Totally. Oh, that's good. Because yeah, I could see it getting overwhelming. Yeah, I feel like we were just getting out, just being out in the world. I was like, I'm an independent woman. <laughs> so kind of in my element or I, that I, or I forgot about that part of me. And then when I was there, oh, I was yeah, like, well. oh, yeah, I'm actually social. <laughs> well, and having a child, I'm sure, limits your social fluidity. Yeah. You can't be as spontaneous. No, totally. All right. I have my semicircle of pillows in my makeshift sound room. Okay. Well, can I just introduce you guys quickly? Yeah. Have you ever met before in person? No. I don't think we have. Oh, okay, cool. Well, yeah, this is Liz. Liz, this is Rima. Hi, Rima. Hi. You guys were both in San Francisco in the tens. The teens, 2000 teens. <laughs> I'm what? Well, yeah, I moved back to LA in 2011. Oh, right. Okay. So the aughts. <laughs> yeah. I think I'd been to Royal Nunsuch though, like once. Oh. Or twice. Cool. But, but when I, right? I think it was around. We opened in 2009. Okay. So yeah, I think I did. Cool. Well, you were telling me about Elizabeth. I feel like we have these overlaps that I think are really interesting to, yeah. Right? I mean, is that, Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Single mom to single mom and (laughs) drug addict to drug addict. Like (laughs) artist to artist. Artist to artist. Were you an addict in your like teen years as well? 
Uh, yeah, it's funny to feel like I'm on. I mean, you're always on the podcast, but there's like sort of different levels of reveal. So I've been sober for 14 years. Um, but so yeah, I was an addict the first time I picked up mm-hmm. a thing to change my mood. And that was like straight up. I found something to drink and then I started drinking in school all day yeah. the next day. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. It, it was, there was not a lot of subtlety. No, there. I know. Me too. I was, I'm an all or nothing kind of person. So when I was a teenager and I, you know, I had a really tumultuous childhood and ran away. I was kicked out a lot and ran away a lot and was, you know, and so, you know, I think when I was 14 is when I first used drugs and, um, and I went to rehab when I was 14 for the first time. Who sent you to rehab? Did your parents? I overdosed. Yeah. Like oh. I kind of started, um, overdosing I was having like heart palpitations and I ended up going to charter hospital and I was there for on a three-day hold and then from then it was more like a lot of it was you know a lot of fun it was more fun at that time and then when I was 17 I became like a hardcore addict you know um I got in a major car accident a drunk driver was driving the wrong way on the five freeway hit us head on and so I couldn't walk for a year and so they were giving me Vicodin so I got addicted to opiates and and that was my main problem until I got sober when I was 22. All my sisters struggled with addiction my brother hasn't my sister is just now in recovery again you know and she's 30 she just turned 39 so you know, there's trauma, there's yeah. like intergenerational stuff, but then there's like real trauma. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. we were all self-medicating, you know? So could you talk a little bit about how you got sober, both logistically, you know, what program or whatever else that you did? And maybe both of you guys could talk about this. And then just what is that thing that like shifted internally for you? And did it happen at the same time or did that click after you started going through the motions of whatever recovery program or, you know, both of you too. Well, from the time that I got really addicted to opiates, I started trying to get sober and I just couldn't get sober. And I, I was very functional. I held a job. I went to school until I couldn't do those things. And I went to rehab the first time and I met somebody in rehab that actually I I got worse after meeting him. It wasn't his fault. He actually is dead now. He overdosed. He overdosed two weeks after my sister Rita died. Mm-hmm. And he's a he was a really important person in my life. But I think meeting him, I started using again, you know, I obviously relapsed on my drug of choice and I became very suicidal. You know, at a certain point I just really didn't wanna be I didn't know how to get sober. And I ended up in the hospital a few times, overdosed. And and it was like the last time, because I just felt pathetic. I felt like I had so much shame and I had so much trauma. I was like estranged from my mom at the time because of all the stuff with my, I had like a really abusive, violent childhood with my dad. And so I didn't know what to do. Eventually I went through AA and that wasn't working for me at the time. But when I, the second time that I overdosed, I I had a stutter, like I actually wasn't speaking the way that I spoke for a while. I was hallucinating. I was, I felt like I went crazy. You know, I really felt like I lost my mind. And, and I remember seeing my mom just the life like sucked out of her, you know, and it was so devastating 
that I just committed to getting sober. And I went into South Coast Hospital and I was there for five weeks. At that time, I actually got off of the opiates and I was prescribed a drug called Klonopin, which is a, an anxiety yeah. medication. And I got addicted to that. That was the hardest thing for me to get off of, actually, because you can't take anything to get off of it. And actually, you go, you go through like a psychosis. You start hallucinating. And after that experience, I did not want to take any medication, a drug. And I had panic attacks, like severe, severe panic attacks. And so I started med meditating and going back, started going back to school. And I did this program. I was at Cal State Long Beach, but I, I was, I got into the school, but I, I ended up going through a community college for a semester and then just eased into my life again and would go to meetings. I still went to meetings, but for me, I just am not like a group therapy person. And Sarah and I were talking about this. So <laughs> I am such a group person. I'm not at all. And I, I felt like I liked the camaraderie, but I felt like I wasn't really aligned with some of the views and not to judge, not in judgment at all. I, I think actually AA is great. And I was telling Sarah yesterday, I still I listen to meetings. I do Al-Anon too sometimes just because I feel like there's value in it, but I wanted something deeper. I felt like I had this internal world that I really want to explore and like the, the meditation really helps. So that is something that changed my life. And, and so I've been sober since, I mean, I've, I've had alcohol, but I never had an issue with alcohol. And right now I'm not drinking and I don't, I wouldn't say that I will never drink, but I just chose to be more sober in my new life with my son, you know, and just, I wanted to have more stability mm. and structure. There's a lot of strong feelings about AA on both sides, like people who are serious AA followers, of which I've like come and gone over the years are like, if it is not the AA way, which is complete and total abstinence, 100% from anything that really impacts your mood. I mean, not, uh, not mood management meds, but anything else. Actually, I think that's problematic. Yeah, the all the all or nothing approach is that is the problem some people have with it. But I'm curious why why don't you like the all or nothing approach if all or nothing is something you said was so much a part of how you functioned around drugs. Oh I mean for me, but for example I have a sibling who is is sober but has to take suboxone. And I think some people have dual diagnosis. Taking medication that helps you survive is looked down upon a lot of the time. What I meant is all or nothing, like with the drugs, like I was all in right away. At, you know, the first yeah. time I did drugs, I loved I wanted to do drugs. I just wanted to be numb. And now I don't but then I didn't, you know, I felt I fell so hard that I, I would I would prefer to not take any medication and have my sobriety and my sanity mm -hmm. and inner peace without it. But I also have a lot of empathy for other people, you know, and I do ayahuasca and uh I don't believe it's a drug. I believe it's a it's it's medicine and I don't do it frequently, but I've done it a few times. A some camps are opposed to that too. Yeah. I feel like it's not a one size fits all. It's not a one size fits all, but it's also funny because I actually have not found that to be true with AA because, you know, I take Seroquel at night, which is like very sedating and a whole host of, you know, various bipolar meds. And I know people who are on yeah. Suboxone and, you know, that's fine in AA as long, as long as it is under the care of 
a professional and you're not making your own choices. So, you know, not like deciding mm-hmm. and when and how much. I remember being in AA and I remember I was told when I was in it, I was taking anxiety medication and I wasn't supposed to be on that. And now smoking marijuana for medicinal purposes. And I get it. And I understand that there are gateways and there are drugs that are unacceptable. I feel like this is just confessional hour. I was also extremely bulimic for 20 years and it's done this like crazy number on my teeth. So I have to have teeth pulled more frequently than maybe um, an average person and get implants. And every time I've had to have a teeth, teeth get pulled, which is four teeth at this point, for weeks beforehand, I look forward to the hour my tooth is getting pulled because of the nitrous oxide. Like I think about it and I'm like, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. <laughs> and then, you know, and I just know to not take myself seriously, you know, I'm just like, oh, Jesus, there it is, that loop, there it is. But you're right, it's part of you forever and ever. It, it really is. Yeah, I mean, jumping in as the official non-addict, I think <laughs> I I have leaned really heavily on different things in my life in lieu of solving my problems in healthy ways or feeling all my feelings. And I can totally identify with the feelings that drive addiction, even if they don't go to the same extreme measures. I actually stopped drinking because during the pandemic, I was sitting at home every day and my schedule was more or less the same. And it it was this thing that I started to look forward to. I would have my coffee in the morning and get like the buzz from that. And then I would look forward to 5 p.m., have my drink, and that would change my feelings again. And like without any language to describe it, I just knew that that wasn't a healthy cycle to get into and that it wasn't improving my evenings and it wasn't making me feel better when I woke up. I think what you guys are saying is really relatable, even though, you know, I haven't been through the exact experiences. But I'm curious, having gone through rehab, when you were drinking more, how would you compartmentalize like this one's okay and the other thing I can't handle? Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. an it's inter- interesting question because I didn't, when I went to rehab and got sober, I didn't drink for a long time, you know, and this is hard in AA. This is something that, you know, if you go to AA and you're, you were a former addict, that's the party you can't line. ever drink. And I did and I drank socially and it was fine. I don't think it's true for most people. And sometimes it's not worth trying if you have an addictive personality or you've gone through a program or have felt like you're an addict, then you probably are an addict. You know, if you think about alcohol, if you're thinking about it all the time, there's probably an issue. Or if you're thinking about drugs all the time or how to how are you going to feel better? Like what, you know, the next time you're going to use or next time you're going to have a drink. I felt like that with the alcohol, even though I wasn't drinking a lot, I felt like I was anticipating every day. I was like, okay, when is it going to be five o'clock so I can have my drink? You know? And then it was like, well, what about four 30? <laughs> can I have one at four 30? Maybe I could have one at four, you know? And I remember even just like not wanting to do that. And I'm like, I don't want to have these habits. It seemed fine in that situation and it felt like I needed it because I didn't know how to cope at the time and it didn't get, thankfully, it didn't, it didn't get worse. But, but now I feel like I needed to restructure my life so that that wasn't something I was craving and I'm not anymore. And so I think it was very situational. Do we want to talk a little bit about going to grad school 
after your sister died, how you were feeling and why you ended up choosing to go to art school or go to graduate school. I think just being in a car accident, just going to rehab what would be a lot for anyone, you know, but then to have your sister die and then move on with your life and go do something as big as graduate school, I think most people can't imagine what that would be like. Uh, yeah. So my sister Rita was struggling with clinical depression for for years. And, you know, a few months before graduate school in 2008, I moved into our old house to take care of her. And she was, she was bedridden. I mean, she was in bed. I fed her. I tried to get her up every day. She didn't really get up. I would bring smoothies to her bed. I, she was very, very ill, you know? And so during that time, she was worried that I was going to go to school, leave her, you know? And I was never, I wasn't thinking that I was going to do anything. I just wasn't sure what was happening. I knew that I got into school and I knew that my sister was sick and I didn't know what was going to happen, you know, at the time, but I, I went through the motions. I went and looked at a place and stuff. And then after I went, went to San Francisco to look for a place for a couple of days, the day that I got back is, you know, when she took her life. And so I, you know, I found her and my, my, and I didn't know at the time. And my sis, my brother and my sister Gina were, were there too. We had like left and, came back we went to dinner and and we came back and at the time I felt so lost obviously going through the PTSD and the trauma of that but then I wasn't going to go to school I said I'm not going there's no way my cousin called the school you know I think I I, they told them I wasn't going to go and my mentors in my life and from school from undergrad just everyone just was like you have to go to school Everyone just came in and was just like, you have to go, you have to go. And I, and I didn't know, I didn't, I just didn't know what I was doing. I felt like I actually didn't want to go, but I also didn't know, I I didn't think I could stay either. Like I didn't know what to do. And so going to graduate school was the hardest thing to do, but it was also the best thing for me because then it actually took me out of my environment and it forced me to go. I processed really kind of somatically, you know, and I think in graduate school, I know I was telling you this, Sarah, but I didn't talk about what had happened until my thesis. So it was like a year. Some of my closest friends in school didn't even know because it was just too close. I I couldn't even talk about it. I couldn't even talk about it. I mean, I think I was starting to be able to talk about it maybe five years, four or five years ago, but I think it was just too close and too heavy and I was processing and I had PTSD. I mean, I I, I feel like I had that. I wasn't diagnosed with it, but I really had a lot of a lot of issues in school, you know, in terms of just trying to process and I would have nightmares. But I will say that, you know, I've come to terms, I mean, after going through that process and having painting as like something to process through was, is still such a blessing. And I feel like I was able to kind of get outside of myself a little bit and and I felt so supported at school, even though I wasn't talking about 
it, you know, but uh, I think once I did expose it, you know, I it was, I felt even more supported, but I, I it's still hard, you know, it's still hard yeah. to talk about. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's still hard to talk about. It's hard for us to talk about. I've known you for 15 years now and it's still hard to talk about with you as a close friend. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's both like wanting to ask and then not wanting to be invasive. And so it's even hard to understand, like even I'm fumbling with words right now where I don't know how to talk about what happened to you and your sister because it's so emotionally insurmountable that it's hard to find language to even talk about it appropriately. But you did seem to not surmount it, but I feel like you came out of it stronger. You know, I mean, I love your paintings. I'm obsessed with your artwork. And I think spiritually, you have grown so much as I've known you just, you know, since grad school. I'm wondering how did you kind of pull yourself out of this? I mean, obviously not alone, but like, what did you do in addition to painting that made you feel re-centered again? Well, I think, you know, I will say that this happened twice. Two of my sisters, you know, took their lives. And so once I, after Rita died, I got really invested in, I did a lot of acupuncture. I did a lot of internal work. A lot of meditation really helped and, you know, Tai Chi and Qigong and all these things that I was doing to kind of, and Vipassana, which is a form of meditation that I really felt like I was able to process internally a lot of this stuff. And this is going to sound weird. And I probably, this is probably the first time I'm going to, I'm even thinking this or saying it out loud, but. When Dina, my sister Dina in 2018, took her life, I felt like I was more equipped to deal with it. Like I was prepared in a way that it's hard to explain. I'm only saying it now because I didn't know it then because it was so horrifying. It's hard to even, I feel like there was no other way but to kind of understand that their illnesses they're not in pain anymore and and I feel like and I think I mentioned this to you before Sarah but I think a lot of times there's so much there's a lot of shame and stigma around the word suicide and taking your life and I think my sisters both of them as um, as amazing as they were and they were just like just creative and talent, smart, intelligent, and beautiful, and just kind and all of these things, they were suffering deeply for a long time, you know, and I understood their suffering so deeply and being so close to what, to Rita and then seeing what happened with Dina and Dina really suffered because of Rita's death, you know, and it made her fall very deep. And, and so I think like, it just made me more sort of internal and I don't like to even use the word spiritual, but I feel so connected to them. They're around me all the time and I feel them and I pray to them every day and I have an altar for them. And like, I don't feel like they're gone. I just feel like they transitioned and, and I know that, and it's going to sound weird to people, but they're not suffering anymore. And, 
And so as hard as it is to not have them here, and I miss their physical presence, and, I, and I'm so sad that they felt so alone. And so just the pain that they were in, in the, that moment, that's what makes me want to just yeah. cry all the time, you know, to feel that, that pain, that desperation. But knowing that they're free now gives me not joy, but I just know that they're not suffering. And so that's taken a lot of internal work. And I still grapple with it. You know, I still cry every day for them. I feel like that's a concept that people have for everything actually but suicide, where people are given the room to acknowledge that they were suffering and the suffering is over. And I don't think that grace is given as much because it's judged in a different way. We're just to acknowledge this as a disease. And in some ways, like also, I think the clinical depression is so different in my understanding from the vernacular use of the word depression, like the level of which that disease can be debilitating over time. But yeah, I, I don't think it's used in the same way as it is with somebody with a terminal illness that is, you know, more physical based. And a lot of people who use are self-medicating, you know, if you die from cancer, you don't have the same, yeah, you're not stigmatized for that. But I think for people who take their life, like, I mean, if I could even explain to you the level of suffering that my sisters have felt, I... Well, and I, when you think about them as a person, there's so much more richness and depth to them than the way that their life ended. And when someone dies of cancer, they're remembered for all those things. But then if their life ends through mental illness, it becomes this shameful thing and you almost just delete the whole person out of fear and shame to talk about it because you don't want to bring up this thing. And it's like, well, that's not really honoring their memory, you know, and it's just part of their life and that's not who they are. That's true, actually. I mean, I feel like you're not remembered and I get it. It's really hard for people. I I often don't talk about it because I think it's hard for other people. It's it's hard. I, I find it more difficult for them and I want to spare them that awkwardness but with like my sisters that's what they're remembered for and Dina was an incredible writer and musician and like she she could have gone further but she her, she, she was debilitated by her illness you know and Rita too she had started she started designing yeah. like she was doing fashion design she was she was a music promoter and really involved in all these things and helped and you know and I feel like no one remembers any of that after experiencing or witnessing their death or just, you know, being present for that. It took a lot of work for me to get, to remember them in a different way because it was just so present in my mind, you know, and so I understand it. It's a very complicated thing, you know. Everything you're talking about, I feel like could make many people feel super isolated and just apart from everything and everybody. Like I can't relate to groups. I can't relate to the individual experiences of other people. And then you are also talking about all of this healing work that you've done. And I was there just a conscious thought about how to have experiences not isolate, but sort of catalyze doing 
things that would help you heal. It's like it opened up something and you are, you know, connect energetically through. And honestly, that seems very brave to have this open heart to do that type of energy based work. And so I guess it's more of an observation how, how basically, how did you not have these experiences just shut you down? And how did you stay sort of open after them? Yeah. It's interesting because my other siblings asked me the same thing because I have two other siblings and I feel like I've always, I think when I was a kid, I like experienced death at a really young age. Like my aunt, my aunt died when I was like 12 and you know, I, she was really close to me. But then when I was young, I feel like I just had so much trauma as a kid I don't know. I've always felt very connected to spirit. I've always felt that as a kid. And I felt like actually when I started meditating and I stopped using, I, 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 I I had that. I felt that connection to it even more so. And then when my sisters died, I really also had, I didn't want the rest of my this is the maternal part of me, but like, I felt like if, if, if I fell, then that my whole family would fall. I had that kind of drive to keep going. I still have that. I mean, even when my sister, and I can't explain why I have that this, but when when my sister Dina died in 2018, I I, I think I told, told Sarah this, but I did ayahuasca and I had a vision of my son. And then which is what planted the seed to have a kid. It was af- and that was actually, I'm sorry, before Dina died, I went to do ayahuasca and I to pray for her because I knew that something was going to happen. I just felt it and I saw it with my son. And so when Dina died a few months later, wow. I knew I had to have a kid. And and so that's I was with my partner Daniel at the time and he he actually had wanted to have a I mean he wanted that we talked about it before Dina died actually. And so when Dina passed away, I, we were just like, I, I just knew that's what needed to happen. And so I got pregnant right away. It was just like, literally, wow. I knew I had to do that for my family, not just for me. Like there was just no joy. Like how yeah. could you, how could a family go through that twice. And also I will say my mom's brother committed suicide too when I was when I was 18. And he was really close to me. There's a lot of kind of I don't like to use the word mental illness, but emotional imbalance in my family on both sides. You know, on both sides. And so so I knew I had to do it. So I don't know what it is. I feel like also our painting has been such a lifeline for me over the years and I feel so blessed that I have it it's always kind of just been a way for me to to move through these things and I have to just say like the the internal work like I did a lot of therapy the last few years too I wasn't really a big therapy person before but I saw my my therapist she's an astrologer and uh she's very well versed in young and all kinds of things and yeah, she, it was the best. It was Love like, it. I feel like that's what I need. Like I, my soul just needs to just be a sponge. I just need to be a sponge and learn about all these different things. And and we're in, in energy, you know, and doing that work, I don't know, 
I feel like when you have a lot of loss, in some ways, I feel like sometimes you can access things more during that period of grief. And so in that way, I feel like I've also been kind of driven by, you know, that these other experiences, I don't want to sound too, like, I know this is the side woo, but (laughs) too woo woo. (laughs) Yeah, you can, you can go deep woo. Oh, I can? We we can, oh, you can. You can go as woo. Super deep woo. Yeah. We encourage it. This is a safe space. I was just speaking of woo and I was actually just having, I was like, gosh, I wonder if this is going to sound too woo, but I'm glad we all are now reminded we're on, it's called the side woo, but it also could be like the main dish woo, entree, appetizer, and dessert woo. Exactly. The entree. This idea of like, I knew it was my time to get pregnant and then I got pregnant. Like, you know, in our world, there's a lot of like, until you're, I don't know, 25, like this is how not to get pregnant, not to get pregnant, not to get pregnant, but getting pregnant is like not that easy. And it, the chances of aren't, aren't that great and you know as people age it's not that great I mean it's not that it's impossible but it's definitely not as much of a given as maybe we sort of were brought up thinking it just like you know do it and it happens and I mean when you said that like you knew it was your time and then you got pregnant it just it it just resonated at this like that is spirit level to me in this super, super deep way. That's not about like, I want to have a baby because, you know, which is a one, you know, everybody can, I don't want to judge the reasons why people want to have babies. Everybody has their own thing, but there are different levels of connectivity to what the reality is of having a child. So that, that was just a really, like the way you said that, like one, two, three, I was like, wow, that, that is that is energy spirit. It just felt like a spiritual prayer, just the way you said that. I feel like my whole life, it's weird, but my whole life has been like that. I'm very clairsentient and I really trust what my feelings about things. And I never wanted to have a kid before that. I mean, everyone knows my mom was shocked. She was just like, you never wanted to. I was this like monastic. I'm still a monastic painter, but I was just like painter, like eight hours a day, you know, like, like never crossed my mind. Yeah. You know, uh, I never met the right person. I met the right person too. And that was great. So grateful that Daniel is Mimi's father, but it was very much a, a call since I was a kid, that was something that I also have always had. And so, and my sisters too. And uh, we come from a family of, my my grandmother was very, very, I would say intuitive, highly intuitive. She read cups. That was her, you know, and my, my great grandfather, her dad was a homeopathist and a philosopher. And like he made herbs and, and her mom was a, a midwife and a natural gynecologist you know, in the early 20th century. So, so in other words, a witch, like, (laughs) yeah, we have a very witchy, like as kids, we would go to this place called awakenings in our neighborhood. And we would, you know, read about astrology, read all the Linda Goodman and tarot. My mom was really into astrology. And I didn't really know that right until, you know, years late, but 
we were all into it. And Gina too is very much into astrology. My, my sister that's still here and even my brother, you know, he's super sensitive and kind of psychic and he's just sweet. He's very in tune, you know, we're very different in a lot of ways, but I think that's something that we have in common. I also feel like I still have with my sisters that aren't here physically. If you knew us growing up, we were all like a clan, Rita and Dina and I, Gina was a little younger. And so we were always together and have this real deep psychic connection that I think we still have. I feel my sisters all the time when I'm painting. Do you ever have any kind of like visual connection other than sensing them around you? Is there anything that like happens that you know that they did? Yeah, I've had visitations. And so my my brother and my sister, Gina, we've had visitations. Uh, The first one, I mean, I, I've had, I wouldn't say many in the way that was so intense, but I've had a few like this where the first time was in San Francisco. And I, I told a few friends, but I was in my first semester at CCA and I couldn't sleep with the light off. And I didn't sleep with the light off for eight years after my sister Rita died. I was too scared because I felt her on me. Like she wouldn't get off of me. And not in a negative way. It was just like this clinginess. She didn't want to let go, you know? So I was afraid. And one night I felt and saw my sister enter my body. The whole room turned warm like light. Like it was, I can't describe it. It wasn't like she was a light that entered, but it was just bright. And my whole body was euphoric. And I felt her in my body. Yeah. And the same thing happened to Gina, Dina, and Adam. All three of my siblings in the same way. And I can't even just, it didn't last very long, but I remember the feeling. And that happened to me two times. And one other time was different. uh, And that was actually last year was I was in my studio. I'm pointing here like it's over here. It's not. Oh yeah, over there. I, right wish behind I, that plant. I was in my studio, but I was painting. And sometimes I feel like my sisters are working through me when I'm painting. But this particular time like channeling. Yeah. But this particular time, she like my and it wasn't Dina, it was Rita again. And she she entered my body and was moving my body while I was painting and I could feel her moving my body. I haven't talked about this openly. I've only written about it and told one person besides my family. Because my family <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> you are home and safe. <laughs> she yeah, like literally was moving my body. And it was a painting I made that's actually gonna be in the show that I opens uh, next month, but or in May, but it's called Total Eclipse. And that painting I, there was like a whole painting session where my I felt like I was being moved. Can't explain it. Can you can you see the marks on the painting differently from the traditional marks that you make? No, it was just a feeling in my body. I wasn't painting differently. It was the way I was moving was different. I can't explain it. Mm. 
It was so weird. It was amazing too. It felt like I was high or something, just elated. You know, I remember even when I wasn't painting, I was standing and I was still moving. Oh, wow. I was still moving. It was like I was doing Tai Chi or something in my studio, which I dance in my studio all the time secretly. That's like the best when you you do something good and you're painting and you're like, dance break because I'm such a good painter. And so I don't want to be weird, but you're like 100% sure it's them. I'm 100% sure it was not Dina. It was Rita. I mean, I had I had experiences, different experiences with Dina. But with Rita, I don't know why those have been Rita, but I know that they have been. I love that. Well, and I feel like she was checking in and just saying, I'm okay. You're okay. Like, what did you feel after that? When, when she entered my body? Yeah, the very first one. I felt... I didn't feel scared. I think I had so much fear. I had, you know, I, I had insomnia. You know, I was really scared to go to sleep. And so I didn't know what to do. I remember sitting at the time, I had a boyfriend and I would just sit on the phone. He would just sit on the phone and I would just go to sleep with him on the phone because I was just so scared. But I didn't feel scared. I felt this inner peace. I didn't say that it lasted. I felt like very elated and excited by it for the next few days. But I would get triggered a lot during that time at night, you know, when I was by myself, I would just be so, I was so emotional all the time. And I felt like kind of contained and I was in school, you know, I'd be in school and I would just close my curtain and just be painting, you know, and not want to talk to anybody, you know, and then I would go home and I'd get home. I, I would just cry and, and I felt scared, but that felt really good. I don't have those feelings anymore. I mean, I, I cry, yeah. But that's it's good to cry. I, you know, I just feel really yeah. connected, especially right now. I, the last, I think the last few months, I feel very, very connected to my siblings. I heard a song that I'm pretty sure my dad put on the radio for me and just started bawling, you know, and then it's gone, you know, so it doesn't need to mean anything other than it's just letting it out for a couple minutes or seconds. It's just a reminder that. Mm-hmm they're around you and they're, I think you can access, I think we all can access it. It's just wanting to access it. Well, there are a lot of blocks, but I think we can all access the spirit if we wanted to. It's one of those things that I can imagine somebody really panicking when you get that feeling like truly panicking and trying to shut it down. And it sounds like you did a lot of work to be ready for that moment where your sister could come into your body because that, that feels like a pretty, I I hate to, I'm like, I don't want to use this word advanced, but it seems like it's not like in the starter pack. It's like, you have to like (laughs) emotionally have, have done some real work to get to that point where you're like, okay, come in. <laughs> yeah, that you'd feel safe and secure enough and discerning yeah. enough to know that it was her versus somebody else or something else and and then and allow to go with it. That yeah, I agree with Liz. That's like a black belt level move. <laughs> yeah, it is a black belt. My mood is Scorpio. <laughs> well, I was gonna ask you what your son Scorpio and rising are for the oh, market. I'm a double Virgo, so my alter wow. ego is Pisces, <laughs> and then my moon is Scorpio, my Venus is Scorpio, oh. my oh. Mars, my Mars is Leo, 
Well, I thought we could finish up on a high note, which would be your sweet cherub <gasps> of a son, yeah. new mare. Maybe you could talk about parenting and how wild that is as an artist and then also maybe co-parenting. Since Liz is also a co-parent, you guys can compare notes. Wow. Yeah. Co-parenting. Gosh. Well, I just started doing it. (laughs) How long have you been single or not with the dad? Since December. Since, Since December. Okay. So pretty new. What about you? You're co-parenting? We are co-parenting for the last five years. We've been co-parenting. Yeah. It's funny because I feel like in my relationship the last few years, we were co-parenting. We weren't really together. We were co-parenting. I think we co-parent really well. So I think moving out, I moved out in December. And I think I'm finally, we're all just finally adjusted to the scheduling. My son is two. He's in preschool. He stays with me four nights a week and he's with his dad three nights, but we, we are at each other's houses every night to see him. And so he doesn't feel it. I mean, I think there was a little bit of a regression like a month ago, but he seems to be doing really well now. So he's two now, two and a half, but he started preschool when just after turning two, he started at the end of September. And prior to that, I was the primary caretaker during the day, you know, and then I would go to my studio at night, which was crazy for a while. It was a lot. And now I feel like I have more of a stable, consistent schedule. And I have to say, my Mimi's dad and I do really well co-parenting because now all of that other stuff, all the resentment, all of that is just gone and we don't have to talk about any of it and it's not emotional well you you need (laughs) need specific things a lot less from somebody you're not in a relationship with when you're in a relationship I think it's more common to be like why are you this way and why are you that way and why aren't you the way I want you to be and when you're not in a relationship you're like okay that's who you are and you know everybody and you're like move it along that better <laughs> move it along yeah, yeah it doesn't but, seem yeah i mean there are parts of co-parenting that are actually positives where each parent can develop like this one-on-one relationship with the kiddo and you know sometimes you get a little more time to yourself just as a, as a grown up woman <laughs> when you have a co-parent. It sounds like you have a good situation. I feel really blessed too that my situation is really great in that way because his dad is really great with him. I think as much as I would want to have Numi all the time every day, I know it is also nice to sleep past 5 a.m. some days (laughs) but no I mean radical question should all parents be (laughs) co-parents why do you need to be a full-time mom when you can be a part-time mom (laughs) well you know I think radical answer is like nobody I mean everybody should ideally which nobody has two houses it's not the se- yeah. the separated marriage that's the key to this like the glory key to this whole <laughs> sorry but <laughs> it's i think having other homes for other people to be in charge of your 
child is like that is the community way my um son sleeps at my house seven days a week so I'd say we're more of like an 80 20 situation but when I talk to families that are still nuclear the thing unequivocally that everybody is jealous of is that I get the house alone they're like I'm so I know you're a single mom I know he's type 1 diabetes I know I'm so sorry to be like I'm totally freaking jealous of you but like I'm like, I get it. It's it's really good. And as, you know, a single person, I got that a lot during the pandemic. Like, I felt very isolated. I'm like, but no, you're alone all the time. And my friends with kids were just like, no, you're wrong. (laughs) Like, that is better than what I am dealing with. Yeah, it was kind of inconceivable to me that, you know, you could prefer the other thing. But I... I don't know. I having now worked a more normal job from home, I literally have paid to have an office elsewhere because I cannot stand being home all day. And then I imagine adding a kid in there or two and it has changed my perspective a lot. But yeah, I think that's an interesting divide that maybe the childless and the the parents will maybe never fully cross together. <laughs> I totally get what you mean. It's hard to imagine for parents getting overwhelmed by time alone. And it's hard to imagine for people who are having a lot of time alone to be overwhelmed by relational things. Like everything, there's pluses and minuses with both. And once you get into the extreme territories, and the pandemic pushed us into very extreme living situations. Nobody should be with anybody 24 hours a day. Absolutely. Nobody should be without anybody for 24 hours a day. Absolutely. It just, well, and yeah. I I think we can just make a blanket apology to anyone during the pandemic that we may have been out of line with. Anyone listening, if I was at all snarky to you, and if you were at all snarky to anyone else or me, like I'm completely forgiving anyone who had bad behavior during the pandemic. I hope that we can all extend each other. Like a lot of people broke up, but just let's all give each other some slack (laughs) for how hard that was and how unwell we are to deal with what that was and still is. Yeah. I mean, those circumstances were just really challenging on every level. Yeah. Cause just hearing some of my non-married, non-child having, having these fights about whatever, cause the other person's home all the time now. And I'm like, well, I just don't think this is a fair situation for anyone. It's not that I want to take your husband's side, but the fact that you're now having to both work in your tiny house. For I remember hearing stories like, normally I would be 100% on your side, but right now we all need grace and forgiveness and just a lot of slack. I felt like I was actually in a good place during the pandemic because I had a newborn. So I would have been at home anyway. Yeah. I didn't have all the social... The social pressure, because what happens when you become a mom is that you just become totally isolated. Like people don't call you anymore because you don't go out and, you know, it's weird. It's interesting. I don't know if you felt this, Elizabeth. Yeah. And what what felt good about the, the pandemic, I could say, like, well, no, nobody was going out. So I didn't feel like that pressure was extreme on that end at all. But, but I did feel like I... I just missed community and I couldn't have any, there wasn't anyone to call on for help. And that was hard, you know, during the pandemic. I mean, zero to one, it's a very unique time. You're so isolated anyway, 
emotionally and physically and in all ways during that first year that, yeah, it's like a pandemic hardly makes a dent <laughs> in the isolation that would have existed. Does, anyway. yeah. I, I hated the first year so passionately and I knew I just had to get through it to get to more years. <laughs> What part of it didn't you like? Pretty much top to bottom. Yeah. I mean, I obviously, I, I loved him like as a little human, sure. you know, of course. everybody says, but it's true. I really did. I loved my little human more than anything, but I did not adjust well to what it meant to feel emotionally responsible for another yeah. human survival. And I, I was not on the same mood management things that I normally on. And so I went full force into postpartum anxiety and OCD. There, I, you know, there's a lot I've dealt with, but I'm going to rank OCD as up there as one of the, one of the biggies. And so I had to do exposure therapy to get out of it. What is exposure therapy? Oh my God, you guys. So I had to read my first step around my parents when I was in rehab. I've done like some fairly who wants to do that things <laughs> when it comes to mental health. But basically, once you start having a ton of intrusive thoughts and your brain just starts getting taken over by intrusive thoughts and you watch somebody like, you know, they have to wash their hands 600,000 times. But it's because of intrusive thoughts. It's like, if I don't do that, I'm going to die. If I don't do that, I'm going to harm somebody else. If I don't do that, I'm going to spread germs to somebody and then they're going to get something or whatever your intrusive thoughts are about. I had just a lot of intrusive thoughts about, about Langston dying. And I was just at this like high adrenaline state about it all the time. So I never slept and I just wasn't able to... I mean, I functioned really well because I'm a woman who functions really well, regardless of what's happening internally, always. I mean, until I'm not. But exposure therapy is where you have somebody walk you through in ascending orders all of your fears. And you are not allowed to reassure yourself and you're not allowed to avoid them. This is basically you walk through the nightmare scenario. And so we walked through scenarios where Langston would die. And it was in that moment of, of accepting that something horrible could happen, that you would get a wave of relief. Accepting the fact that there's uncertainty in life was the key to there being some relief because everything else was this desperate, desperate pull to make the uncertainty zero. I will make everything safe and I will control every aspect A to Z and I will not let anything happen. So we would do these things and you're like sobbing and sobbing and sobbing or I'm sobbing. And then in the middle of talking about the worst thing imaginable, like for the first time in a year, your body relaxed. And so I did exposure therapy. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And it worked. It was crazy. Wow. That's exposure therapy. That's intense. Wow. Sounds intense. Oh yeah. Because the feelings you have after having a child, nobody talks about all of the emotional stuff. And then, Whew. I don't know, and the physical too, but just there are all, all these fears. You have this living being and nobody teaches you how to care for them. And you're like, oh my God. Okay. 
it was way easier when they were inside you in the womb. And then now you're like, oh my God, I have to feed this thing? Like, what am I supposed to do? And it's, it is, it's scary at first. It really is. Oh my God. The secret is that parenting is keeping your child alive. That's literally like the main. Keeping them alive. Yeah. Goal. And then you're privileged if you have any other concerns after that. <laughs> it's hard. I remember nursing. I couldn't get enough milk and that was like pumping and, you know, nursing. And then finally four months out, I was just like, I can't, my, I stopped producing milk and knew me was like, give me a bottle. <laughs> I'm, I'm over this. And that was such a relief, you know, but the shame of that, you're like, no, I want to be able to do this, you know, and your body is not allowing you to do it. It was very emotional, very, very emotional after having a child. Wow. I mean, that's a great PSA for listeners that breastfeeding can be very hard, very painful. Some people experience major drops in mood while they're breastfeeding. So anyway, it's a whole thing. And or it could be really easy and blissful. You know. Yeah, some people, Although I've never I, I never heard liked that. it. I never enjoyed it. I felt like, okay, is this working? Is he getting enough? Like the whole time I'm like, is he getting enough milk? Like how much do I need to eat? I can't even eat enough food to produce enough milk for this child. It was just so hard. So when it, once I, he took to the bottle, I was just so much happier. I think my experience shifted a lot. And I felt like, yeah. okay, I don't have to focus on that part. I don't have to be that for him. Yeah. <laughs> so back to this idea that you're connected with spirit to know that you're supposed to have a child. And I would say, and I, you know, remember talking to Liz about whether or not I would want kids. And I think now with clarity, I have never been called to have kids in the moment. And that in its own way has been connecting with spirit. And I, there is a part of me that knows that in the future, there may be a point where there's like a fork in the road and I will have to make a more solid decision because I may have a window where I want one. But I would say the feeling that you don't want kids can also be very strong. And I think we're not told that. And so I always thought maybe I don't know myself or maybe I'm cut off from myself. But Really, I don't think it's that. I think I am connected to my purpose. And my purpose is not to have a child right now because I'm giving birth to so many other things that aren't humans. <laughs> so I think it's a blessing to be that certain. And I, I think you're lucky. Yeah, and I don't know that I've always been that way. But just right now, I could not imagine having one. And I'm okay with that not being a part of my life, you know. But I think like the more we say that's an okay option, that people can tap into that feeling. I hate how limited the celebrations are for people that we have like weddings and marriage, baby parties and whatnot. But like, I, you know, this kind of rite of passage, like I'm going to have a weekend away to celebrate (laughs) the fact that I I have decided not to be a parent. Like, I wish we could like celebrate (laughs) these like massive milestones, you know, that people have. Yes. Well, I do feel secretly every time I have an opening that that is like a little party for me. I kind of always do feel like, oh, this is celebrating my life choices. <laughs> so, yeah. But I feel like we should come with presents. Like, yeah, you know, fuck yeah. Be like, all, like we need to like sit down somewhere fancy and shower 
Right? Where are my <laughs> diamond-studded Manolo Blahniks, like in that episode of Sex in the City? Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like season five or six, and Carrie goes to this party and takes off her thousand oh, dollar yes. shoes that yes. have like Swarovski yes. crystals all over them and they get taken by somebody else exactly and so then she goes to the host like well they were a thousand dollars you made me take them off you need to pay for them and the host is like oh my god as if you know I don't have money for that you know I have kids and she's like well I spent a lot of money at your wedding I spent a lot of money on your baby shower you know I did all these things for your kids and you She's like, this is my life and this is my life choices. And so then she gets a pair of shoes as like a a you're not married gift or something. She started a registry (laughs) for herself. Yes, 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 yes. I don't need those shoes, but something would be nice. (laughs) I feel like you're more stigmatized in the art world for having kids versus not. I feel like it's kind of a norm to not have them. I mean, actually... Recently, more people have been having children. There is a little bit of like a mommy mafia (laughs) that I feel a little envious of because there's networking Mm. that happens and just general community building that happens around the fact that they're working moms and artists. So I think there's a way to leverage it. Like I've seen artist moms leverage that, Mm -hmm. which I think is awesome and they should do. I feel like I don't even have time to even think about that. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm just trying to get to my studio, take my kid to preschool, go to sleep, make his lunch, you know, like do all oh the God. things. You know, we went to his first birthday party a few weeks ago. There isn't time for extra socializing or leveraging or at least in my experience. Uh, <laughs> <I don't> even, <laughs> I'm just trying to get get to the studio at some point, you know, and stay there for X amount of hours oh before God. picking it up. It's a d- different mode, you know? It's really just, like, a very monotonous, in a way, I appreciate the consistency. Once I've embraced it, it's just this kind of, like, day-to-day, very kind of boring <laughs> or predictable but it's not glamorous in any way. I don't know if you're hanging out with a lot of our artist parents. I, I'm not. I definitely know there's like, there's groups of mom artists where they're part of groups because they're mom artists. But personally, no, 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 no. I don't, I, glam, the glamour bus <laughs> has left. The, the Although we are welcoming Queer Eye to, <gasps> oh yeah, to help Liz get back on the glamour bus. If anyone from Queer Eye listens. Yes, I, I am going to apply on behalf of Liz. Oh my God, <laughs> so amazing. Do it. The Glamour bus can come to Oakland, California. <laughs> so listeners, feel free to nominate. You apply? So you apply? You do. You know, it's like, it's like the Seeker Awards. <laughs> you, <laughs> you don't know who nominates you. <laughs> right. It's just an anonymous nomination. The producers go through, I mean, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I, then they go through and they research and they find their cast and stuff like that. But yeah, so you're anonymously nominated by people who love you, but then feel kind of sorry for you. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know how it worked. I mean, I definitely knew that you were nominated. I didn't know there was like an application. Process. Oh my God. Well, and then Liz is like, I would literally fill my entire car with trash in order to have them come help me. <laughs> 
which I just love. And I think that's the kind of content that would do really well in Queer Eye. So Yeah. I do love Queer Eye. I don't watch anything anymore, but I do love I do enjoy a little bit of that. I don't know how far we want to get in the weeds with this. I have a lot of thoughts, but maybe we can kind of wrap it up and not go on and on. How's everybody feel? <laughs> Woo! It's a lot. I feel so exposed. I mean, people who know me, none of this is probably surprising at all, especially like the connection to spirit. But I feel a little exposed in a good way. I've been kind of like coming out of the closet that I was an energy worker. Yeah. A while ago, oh my God. And, like, I love it. Good. <laughs> I would never talk about being a Reiki practitioner, not for any reason other than I just felt like there's no need to talk about it. These are just things that I do and I don't need to advertise it. But I, I think it comes from being in school and feeling really shut down by a lot of the stuff that I came in with and not being able to talk about that. So I think anything sort of esoteric or mystical is shut down. And so it feels good to yes come on out with it well, thank you for <laughs> trusting us with it i'm making a bowl gesture with my hands like a giant you know, a giant goddess vessel oh, you know yeah. it is a lot of trust to just come and say what's real and true for you yeah i mean i'm shitting myself a little bit with how much i get <laughs> fast on this episode i'm like what the fuck uh but you know well <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much, Rima, um, and Liz, also for sharing your guys's deepest, darkest truths. Oh, this has been fun. That's all for this week's episode. Thanks for side wooing with us. We release episodes every other week on Thursday. Please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast for good karma points. Until we meet again in the woo. This is Sarah with an exciting announcement. We have just launched the Side Woo Collective, a new inclusive community of artists, metaphysical practitioners, and the Woo Curious. The Side Woo Collective is for now an online community focused on art, the metaphysical, and general wellness. Essentially all the things you love about the podcast, but in real life. Our first offering is a three-week online course with classes every Sunday at 6 p.m. between February 12th and the 26th. Classes include sigil making with artist and educator Rachel Dawson, Intuition 101 with tarot reader and Scottish witch Amelia Whitehouse of the Carnelian Keep, and Drawing Your Shadow with Yours Truly. You can go to our new website, thesidewoo.com, to sign up, get on our mailing list, or reach out with any questions. This will be a great way to engage with one another and get a better understanding of who this community is. I'm really excited to share it with you and hope to see you there.